Father, we affirm our confession matching this song that you were Lord at your birth, that you have ruled and reigned from eternity past. There was no lapse in your rule. There was no lapse in your glory. Instead, Lord, at that appropriate time, the fullness, the perfection of the prophetic moment was fulfilled. You added to yourself the form of a man, Christ Jesus, and you stooped low. You took on flesh. You were born among us. You fulfilled prophecy, and you went to Calvary, fully God and fully man, to satisfy, to accomplish our salvation in your work of redemption. Lord, these are the things that stir our hearts, Lord, to take such hope and joy and consolation. They challenge our mind to think more deeply and thoroughly about all the amazing connections, the complexity and the beauty of the tapestry of your great work of salvation woven through all of covenant history. These are the things that grant us endurance and grace through life's trials and afflictions, knowing That if all creation waited for thousands of years for the advent of the Son of Man, that we can join creation in waiting for the revelation of the sons of God in full. At such time, you will return for a perfectly reconciled world and all of the church to worship you in perfection forever. We have the certainty of your promises. We have a hope that is steadfast and enduring in what you have written for us in your infallible word. We have every reason to praise you and to worship you with our whole heart, rejoicing with hearts aflame the knowledge of our sins atoned for and the hope of eternal life with all the saints who have experienced the miraculous, life-saving, dead-resurrecting power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this morning, as the scriptures are open before us, we pray that the Spirit would proclaim them with authority to our hearts and souls that they might transform us through the renewing of our mind, the equipping of ourselves as your ministers and ambassadors to proclaim and to stand upon the truth, even in a world that would mock you. I pray that as you grant grace and your message goes forth and your church is faithful, that there would be more that bow the knee to Jesus Christ, recognizing that you were Lord at your birth. And without your birth, there is no hope for mankind. But because of your work here on earth, We can have the assurance of our sins atoned for and the promise of life everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we turn to the Holy Scriptures to worship the Lord by tuning our attention to the revelation of Jesus Christ in His Holy Word, particularly in the Gospel of Luke. Would you turn to Luke chapter 2 with me this morning? The title of this morning's message is Incarnation Songs. More precisely, the theme or the focus of our text today, three three texts primarily, Luke 1, 67 through 69, 2, 25 through 32, and 2, 9 through 14. The focus of these texts is expressions of worship. All three are in poetic form. Perhaps all three were in song form. But expressions of worship in the Scripture Worthy of Christ, who is born of a virgin, taking on flesh, the second person of the Trinity, and dwelling among us. Incarnation songs. The aim of this morning's sermon is to highlight worship-inspiring realities of the Incarnation. Worship-inspiring realities of the Incarnation. Um, Any young people in this room, perhaps one of the older ones, could you give me a definition of the Incarnation? What is the Incarnation? The incarnation is when Jesus, what? Someone said was born. That is correct. Any further thoughts? Any further comment? The the incarnation is when Jesus was, or when Jesus came. That is correct. So think of incarnation as two words. In, that's the first part. Carnation, flesh. So in flesh. You think of the word carne or carne, some root word, maybe Latin. My wife would probably know because she's homeschooling along these lines. The idea is uh, a flesh or corporal being meat. The uh, term is associated with those usages in the English, incarnation, in flesh. So when we think of what is traditionally celebrated at Christmas, our minds might be distracted by all form of you know, different things that have become sentimental and traditional and so forth. But if you want to get to the substance of what Christ coming to earth 
really entails. It is summed up in the doctrine of the incarnation and all that Christ in flesh, God in flesh, implies. And truly, as you are, your hearts are awakened to the reality of these things revealed in Scripture, they ought to and they will, if you're a true believer, I trust, inspire worship and direct your attention, your affections, and your confession heavenward as you behold the glory of Christ come. Our December series since the second week has used Psalm 98 as an inspiration. Psalm 98 opens with instructions that we would worship the Lord. It's a call to worship of sorts. It's a call to a specific kind of worship. Psalm 98.1 says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. So this has led to a series this month of new songs throughout covenant history. Just a reminder, we've touched on a few. We touched on a new song in 1 Chronicles when the ark was brought from obscurity in Oben-Edom's household by King David to prominence among the people. We touched upon a new song that was sung by Jehoshaphat and company and the singers who went forth before the armies of the Lord and by God's sovereign power, their enemies were scattered and routed at that great victorious battle campaign. We touched upon new songs that were sung in the incarnation already, specifically last week, Mary's Magnificat, which is a title that we've come to reference her song of praise upon the revelation and communicating with her cousin, husband, or sorry, cousin Elizabeth at the glories of the reality in her womb. We've touched upon new songs that are yet future for us, new songs that will be sung in the new heavens and new earth, and these were glimpsed by John in his revelatory vision in Revelation 4, 15, and 16, as I recall, or excuse me, 4, 14, and 15. Here we have new songs sung by the ransom and redeemed in many ways yet future when the fullness of the elect join the voices of those who have gone before in praise to our great God, our Lord and King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this leads us, leads us to three more songs of the incarnation in Luke chapters 1 and 2. The first was sung by Zechariah, Luke 1, 67 through 79. The second is sung by the angels at the night of Christ's birth, Luke 2, 25 through 32. And the third is sung by Simeon, if you will, Luke 2. I'm sorry, switch those last two references. 25 through 32 is Simeon. And then Luke 2, 9 through 14 is the angels. Let's begin there. Would you stand with me as you're able out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word? And let us read Luke 2, or let us listen to the proclamation of the word this day, Luke 2, 9 through 14. Listen and hear the holy word of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the, high, in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As we have already noted, Psalm 98 instructs worshipers throughout the ages to, quote, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. As we have Additionally noted in past messages, a new song, the biblical concept of a new song as a form of worship could be understood, understood in these terms. To sing a new song in the context of redemptive history is to recognize with proportional and appropriate praise each new occasion to worship our majestic Lord. To recognize with appropriate praise each new occasion to worship the Lord. And our text today, as we've also sung in our hymns this morning, 
a 400-year silence or so was broken in our song today by a baby's cry. In our text today, this 400-year intertestamental silence is interrupted also by a host of angels from the realms of glory proclaiming the news of the long-awaited Messiah's birth in Bethlehem. And this first announcement, as we see it here in our text, was to the shepherds who are watching their flocks in the fields surrounding the region. This occasion was a miraculous event, the birth of Jesus Christ, that called for appropriate praise if there ever was one. What is proportional and appropriate praise for the incarnation, we might ask after all? Our text today answers this question. If there ever was an appropriate time to sing a new song to the Lord, surely the birth of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, fulfilling prophecy, God become man, would be a moment like this, a moment worthy of our attention and our praise. Thus voices from heaven and earth join in offering a new song unto the Lord, unto Christ, receiving their King and witnessing the marvel of the Incarnation. And though, as we see in our text today, it's just one verse, though the angel's song is recorded with just one stanza or so preserved in the written record, it is nevertheless sweeping in its themes and also paradigmatic. What does paradigmatic mean? It means it establishes a paradigm. Three major themes in verse 14 of Luke 2 also mark other incarnation songs. In one word, those themes are, or in three words, glory, peace, and favor. So, the angel's song is recorded in just one stanza. However, glory, peace, and favor of the Lord compel the worship of those who have uh, lived to see the coming of the Savior in the flesh. And these main emphases of the angel chorus resound in the songs and the voices of Zechariah and Simeon and others as well. Psalm 98 is framed, as you recall, around a multi-tent structure. Do you remember? We noted how the first portion is with reference to the past. The middle portion of Psalm 98 is with reference to the present. The third portion with reference to the future. And what we noted in this poetic structure is that the works of God in this context remind us, they emphasize poetically, they illustrate God's sovereignty over history, past, present, and future, and God's activity in history as well. No greater example of God's activity in time could possibly occur, may I submit, than that of the incarnation. The incarnation shows above any other miracle and all of possible history, God's activity in, within the framework of time itself. After all, God entered into history in the form of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who took on humanity forever in this act to intervene on our behalf and ultimately for His glory. No greater example of God's activity in time could possibly occur. It is fitting, therefore, and illuminating that songs and expressions of praise be recorded for all time, that all of those who love His appearing might be inspired and equipped to worship likewise. The Scriptures, through these examples that we will study today, inspire and equip us with expressions of praise worthy of the Incarnation. They are recorded for all time so that we, His people, now, though several thousand years removed, two thousand some years later, might have fitting expressions of worship to offer to the Lord as we are moved by the Spirit's use of His text to realize the amazing, miraculous, marvelous works of the Lord, especially God in flesh, the Incarnation. This morning I have a heading for you. This heading is basically a threefold division of the angel's song. Songs of the Incarnation hailed three things. Number one, transcending glory. That means glory that rises over and above and across anything else. Transcending glory. Number two, songs of the incarnation herald imminent peace with God. Imminent means available, present, soon coming, guaranteed, tangible, accessible. Transcending glory 
imminent peace with God, glory that rises beyond anything we could imagine, an imminent peace with God, peace available to us, even individually. And thirdly, songs of the incarnation herald a people distinguished by divine favor. A people distinguished, set apart, unique, marked by God's divine favor. Listen again, Luke 2.14. Glory to God in the highest. The Lord is worthy of glory in a transcendent way, all the way to the highest, as it were. And on earth, peace among those. That's a second portion. On this earth, imminent peace is available as a result of what of these happenings that are taking place and unfolding in time in the birth of Christ. But who is this for? It's for those with whom he is pleased. A people who are distinguished by divine favor who have found favor with the Lord, people whom God is pleased, with whom God is pleased to dwell. The songs of the incarnation inhale this, er, uh, herald excuse me, this transcending glory. Luke 2, 9 through 14, glory to God in the highest. This phrase implies expressions and essence of the glory of God that are of the highest order. Expressions and essence of the glory of God that are of the highest order. Glory to God in the highest. This morning we also sang a song, uh, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. That's a Latin translation of this phrase as I understand it, glory to God in the highest. This phrase reminds us that our worship as an expression and the substance of what God has done and demonstrated His glory, these things ought to be in, with respect to our expressions of the highest order and are with respect to his work of the highest order indeed. They are, uh, they are uh, events or the incarnation is an event that is associated with transcending glory. There are three ways that his glory is manifestly transcendent in the incarnation. First of all, magnitude. Secondly, renown. And thirdly, situation. Magnitude. Consider this question. Who is singing? And secondly, who is the power, or, and consider the power of their voices. In this moment, who is singing? And secondly, consider the power of their voices. So young people, who is singing in Luke 2.14? Who sang to the shepherds? The angels, that is correct. So this expression of praise that is offered by the angels, singing, if you will, is a one that was a, it was a chorus that was echoed by heavenly beings, beings that are created specifically and uh, with divine purpose to magnify the Lord. Thus, the magnitude of the worship or the glory worthy of the Lord is emphasized when we consider who is singing the praises and the power of their voices. Consider this, angels join the voices of a priest who was humbled in the presence of the Lord and struck by the revelation that his wife would also bear a son. That priest's name was Zechariah. The angels join the voices of a lowly virgin, Mary herself, who praises in the Magnificat, offering to the Lord glory for the mighty work and miracle he has done even in her own womb. The voices of the angels join the covenant hopeful in their later years, the kings of old, foreign dignitaries, Gentiles, Jews, and many more. Consider, first of all, in our text today, or context, Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before the Lord, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So who is singing? Not only are the angels who are in the realms of glory and ordinarily are unseen and visible to our eyes, not only are they revealed because of the significance of this moment in this supernatural event where the fields are overshadowed by these uh, glorious creatures praising the Lord from the heavens, but also Zechariah will soon praise, as we see later in Luke chapter 1. And Zechariah was a priest by calling. 
Thus, he was in a, a religious, he had a religious purpose. He had a call to offer to the Lord praise within the temple context. And so he did. And little did he know that he and his family would play a direct role in God's plan in unveiling his Messiah. Indeed, as the angel revealed this to him, though he at first was incredulous, he couldn't believe it, he realizes in due course that his wife, Elizabeth, will bear a child who will be John the Baptist, who will pave the way for God incarnate himself, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So we have the voices of the angels, we have the voice of a priest, humbled in the presence of the Lord and struck by the revelation of God that his wife would bear the Elijah to come. We have the voice of Mary in Luke 1.48. She says, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. So now the praises of the angels are joined not just by Zechariah as we see in the text, but Mary herself. Among the lower classes, the obscure, the humble, that which would ordinarily never be privileged with something important, she, her uh, estate did not grant her by man's terms the uh, privilege of being anything all that important or significant. But God elevated her, did he not? He's, she says in verse 52, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So when lowly people, like shepherds in the field, or an obscure young lady in the case of Mary, or you and I saved against all odds, 2,000 years removed at some corner of the globe, so far away from where these events took place, yet ever presently real because of the Spirit's work in our hearts, when the lowly join in songs of praise, it's miraculous as well. The fact that we, who do not deserve it, who weren't counted among the privileged, who weren't born of noble birth or royal blood, should be included in the entourage of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Yes, indeed. This is transcending glory. The magnitude of the glory of God is even is made greater when we consider who joins in this song. There are covenant hopeful in later in Luke chapter 2. This would be Simeon and Anna who joined the praise. Now there was a man in Jerusalem 2.25 whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, key phrase. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and this is his expression of praise, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. So this is a faithful and aged, most likely, saint who is waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he has been faithful to believe the promises of God. We find him appropriately in this moment in the temple. And there he joins his song of praise with the others we've already mentioned. Not just him, but in verse 36, another elderly woman. Here we find a prophetess, Anna. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. From the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to, who, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, Another way of saying what Simeon was waiting for, the consolation of Israel. And these faithful and aged saints who are faithful to the covenant and who believed the promises of God and were found in the place of his dwelling with his people, even the temple, their voices then join the chorus who is singing of the transcending glory of the Messiah who was born. Joining the angels, again, the lowly virgin, the shepherds in the fields, and so many more. Think of the foreign dignitaries in Matthew 2, 1 through 2. These are the wise men. Young people, uh, last Sunday you sang of them. They were the ones who traveled afar following, quote, yonder star, right? And they brought uh, gifts fit for a king. And though they arrived to see a child, merely a toddler at this time, nevertheless, like Simeon, the Holy Spirit had opened up their hearts to realize the significance 
of the moment. And so they bowed before this king and they worshipped him, offering their expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Unlikely worshipers, for sure, from another country, Gentiles, no doubt. Likely men of prominence in their region. Important men who would, in most cases, if they're like other rulers and people in authority, worship themselves or receive the worship of others. Not these. They were humbled in the presence of the mighty king, though he was just a toddler at the time, and brought their praises to mix with the chorus of those who'd gone before. Last week, we covered two kings of old, Jehoshaphat and King David, who took a back seat to the glory of the Lord. The transcending glory of the Lord in the form of the Ark of the Covenant was the main featured attraction in this victory parade as the presence of God carried, as it were, between the cherubim upon the mercy seat is placed back where the people can appreciate it and realize its importance symbolically among them. David himself joins with the worshipers and humbling himself, even stripped down to an ephod and praising representing a greater and more dignified king in his midst. And so we have all types of people. We have Jews. We have Gentiles. We have all types of creatures. We have angels. We have humans. We have all sorts of stations in life, the lowly, shepherd, and virgin, all the way to kings of old and foreign dignitaries. Throughout the Gospels, throughout the Scriptures, even unto Revelation, where the myriads of myriads and the thousands of thousands of the elect the beast conquerors, those who are before the throne, the elders, and even the creatures that we see there, the four living creatures, all of these join their voices in worshiping, singing, as it were, of the mighty transcending glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And thus we see the magnitude of this transcending glory is increased considering who is singing. Consider also the power of their voices. The testimony of everyone I've listened or I've listed so far as just as several examples, the power of their voices proclaims something of the character of Christ. When a king proclaims glory to the Messiah, he testifies that there's a greater king than himself. When the lowly say Jesus is Lord, they testify that he is king and that he can lift up those of low estate, those that society would otherwise forget. When someone from a Gentile nation confesses faith in Jesus Christ, it testifies to the fact that this plan of Abraham to be a light to all nations is coming true. You and I have joined their number. When there are people uh, who are priests in the temple that recognize the priest of priests, it testifies to his work, his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. When there are angels of of the realms of glory, glory championing his praise, you know that this isn't just a mere human. This is God made flesh. And so the magnitude of the glory of God is evident considering the voices that join in song and considering the power of those voices. You know, this is why trumpets, I submit, are associated with worship in Psalm 98. Trumpets are a voice, they're a sound, they're an instrument that communicates power and authority. Never was this better illustrated in my judgment in Scripture, at least my favorite example, is in Joshua 6, 4-5, through where at the trumpet blast and the praises of the people, the walls fell down, illustrating the magnitude of the presence of the Lord when His people worship Him in spirit and in truth and go forth to conquer in His name. And in Christ, we do the same. Transcending glory, not only magnitude, but also renown. As we consider renown, we ask this question, who is celebrated in victory and who is defeated by Him? Well, this, according to the angels, is the Savior, Christ the Lord. Unto you is born, Luke 2.11, this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. David, Savior, Christ, Lord. All those references speak to an authoritative, victorious king and kingdom. The city of David, David the great king who conquered all his foes, virtually never lost a battle as we read of his exploits in Scripture. A type of Christ to come. Jesus Christ will never lose a battle. Even when he faces, stares death, hell, the grave, and Satan straight in the face on Calvary, He comes through the grave victorious when on the third day he is raised from the dead and he rises in victory over the worst and longest and greatest enemies of all mankind. Who is celebrated in his victory? 
and who is defeated by him. This is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This portends the greatness prophesied of Luke 2.11. Or in Luke 2.11, this portends uh, the greatness of the one who is prophesied of old. In Zechariah's song, in chapter 1, verse uh, 68, uh, let's pick up there. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Again, the house of David is referenced because this transcending glory of the angel's song in the context of their worship is echoed by Zechariah in this expression. Now this horn, or the, the reference to horn, is a reference of strength, overcoming, conquering authority. Horn of salvation is raised up for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. And note, he is victorious. Verse 71, and we should, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74 continues in that theme, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So who is celebrated in victory and who is defeated by him? Jesus Christ, the victorious King, the Son of David, who would never lose a battle, who will never and has never lost a battle, who rules and reigns even now with a rod of iron, crushing all impostors, dashing them to pieces like he would a potter's pot on the landscape of history. Every empire and kingdom that rises to challenge his throne will be and is being defeated. This is the renown that is celebrated, the victory of our great king. This victory is celebrated throughout all the songs of worship during the incarnation and beyond. This is Psalm 2 fulfilled. This is Psalm 2 uh, prophesied and fulfilled even in further measure in the future and Revelation 4, chapters 4, 14, and 15. The renown of this individual who is praised, Christ himself, speaks to his transcending glory. And ultimately, this is demonstrated in his work on Calvary in the forgiveness of our sins, which Zechariah also anticipates in 177. Thirdly, situation. When and where are his praises sung? In the case of this first song, our jumping off point for today's message, the angels are praising him in the heavens. Suddenly, 2.13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the situation of this praise, the environment which these, this worship was offered was the heavens. The glories or the glorious creation that God has made is now a stage upon which he, these creatures, these heavenly angels and ministers are praising his great name. Now, uh, throughout history, there have been many stages upon which the praises of the Lord have sung. Think of the situation in Psalm 98. It is a prophecy, and it reminds us of the times when the people sang Psalm 98 in victorious uh, deliverance over their enemies, victorious expectation of the Messiah. His praises are sung throughout history. His praises are sung on the field of battle, Jehoshaphat, on the uh, tabernacle worship returning to the people in the case of David. In the heavens, as the angels say, sing in our text today, and in the temple, as is the case with Simeon and Anna and, in part, Zechariah. Remember, Luke 2.25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. In verse 27, it tells us he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents came, he offered his praise, verses 29 through 32. He was joined, as we've already referenced, by Anna the prophetess. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So think of the situation in their case where Christ received worship. It was no accident that by Anna and Simeon, he received worship in the temple. Why? Because he was what the temple was all about. He was the fulfillment of temple worship. The tabernacle and all that took place before him, even that ark that David carried, and the seat, atoning seat, or the mercy seat, 
between the seraphim. All of this was a picture of Christ. It was the mercy seat upon which the sacrificial blood was shed. And Christ's blood was a necessary sacrifice that was shed, providing mercy for us to be saved from our sins. Those angels, those seraphim, they represent agents that guard the realm and the presence of God's glory, even as in Eden, from the unholy and unfit. And just as in Eden, there's only the high priest who is able to go beyond the curtain. But after Christ came, he became our high priest and he went through the curtain for us. And as Hebrews said, through his torn flesh, we have access beyond the veil. So it is fitting that Christ would be praised and worshiped in the temple. That temple was his temple. That was his house. And he was returning. He was coming. He was in his incarnation appearing, though an infant, at the very place that spoke of him through the covenant ages. And here he was. And now it is evident that the Holy Spirit draws our attention to know who Christ is because it hardly seems reasonable that a little infant that is coming in to be circumcised on the eighth day would be the very one for whom the tabernacle and temple worship revolved this entire time through thousands of years. However, the Spirit did open the eyes of chosen ones, Simeon and Anna, and they worshiped. Thus, the magnitude, the renown, and the situation of worship, whether in the heavens, in the temples, throughout history, the prophecies of the Scripture, or even, yes, saint, in your own heart and home, illustrating how broadly this message has now spread. These situations, when and where His praises are sung, serve to emphasize His transcending glory. The songs of the Incarnation herald His transcending glory by magnitude, by renown, and by situation. Second major point today, imminent peace with God. Again, my thesis is, the Song of the Angels provides three themes that are recurring in the Songs of the Incarnation. The first is glory, the second is peace. Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Peace on earth, the song goes, and goodwill to men. What is this peace, which is spoken of in Luke 2, with apostolic authority, Paul comments on this peace. Turn with me to Romans 5. This isn't the kind of peace that you might feel if you watch a gentle snowfall in a stirring emotional scene in a so-called Christmas-themed movie. It's not the kind of peace you might feel when you stare at a snow globe and a crackling fire in the Christmas tree late in the evening on Christmas Eve. It's not the kind of peace that you might uh, see pictured by a, something serene Recalling the first nativity and a Hallmark card, it's much more than that. Romans 5 tells us exactly what kind of peace is prophesied here. 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There, Paul touches on the themes of glory and peace, and also on our third theme today, a people distinguished by divine favor. People who have been set apart by God, the elect, the called, the chosen, they have had something fundamental change. They have been justified by faith. And the nature of this fundamental change when they become a Christian, when they are born again, is that their status, their relationship with the Lord is now one that is marked by peace and not by animosity, not by rebellion, not as enemies, but now friends. Reconciliation has occurred. Through Him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into the, this grace in which we stand, and we, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is the peace that was imminent, that was within reach now, that the Prince of Peace was born of a virgin. This was the kind of peace now that was accessible when his work was complete on Calvary for all who placed faith in those terms of reconciliation. Now that uh, friendship, that relationship with God would be within reach. This is referenced in Simeon's song in a corporate way. when he, It says of him in verse 25, Now there was a man 
in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for what? The consolation of Israel. Consolation is comfort, it's peace, it's reassurance in having your doubts, your fears, your concerns, your expectation of judgment subside, abated, and have it all be washed away with the reality, with the hope, the living hope, and the reassurance of peace with God and reconciliation with Him. This is what Anna was waiting for as well. Again, we reference, she was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Redemption, to buy back, to purchase from slavery. In order for this to be a reality, the necessary price, and not a penny short, must be supplied to the captor. And so the uh, price was paid in Christ's expensive blood. And every drop proved sufficient to redeem Jerusalem or the true people of God. And every drop of his spilled blood proved to be the agent of consolation for all Israel, all of the elect and covenant people. This was the imminent peace with God that was now within reach because of the incarnation. It is significant that the angels sung peace on earth. Why? Because earth was under a curse since Genesis chapter 3 and so forth when we see man's sin affecting not only him and his state and all who are born of Adam, but all creation itself, which Romans tells us now groans and yearns for the redemption of its own self from the effects of the fall. Yes, indeed, earth has been plagued since Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with animosity, with stress, with anxiety, with the reality of judgment, with the consequences of sin, with hardship, with pain, with sorrow, with suffering, with difficulty, and even securing our own livelihood and destruction that has come from time to time by way of God's provisional judgments, Sodom, Gomorrah, the flood, and also the promise that in the future there will be a day of reckoning so all who have not placed faith in Christ might one day receive what they truly deserve for their sin. This is the judgment that is imminent for this earth that labors and, and suffers under the curse of sin. But a change has taken place. Peace is imminent. Peace is available as a result of this moment in history. Peace on earth. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the celebration of this corporate peace continues. Zechariah echoes ideas right along these lines. He says in verse 74 of Luke 1, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Deliverance from enemies speaks of peace, of course, and, and serving him without fear speaks of a new king and new establishment. And holiness and righteousness all our days speaks of a future, and a legacy, and, a, and eternal life. In verse 79, he closes his words declaring that Christ's advent will provide light for those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide our feet into the way of peace. There's also individual peace. This is peace in a corporate sense for all the elect, but it is realized in a very personal way in Simeon's case. In Luke 2.28, he took him, Christ, the babe, up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. This is a moment of personal meaning for Simeon, wherein he recognizes that his salvation is secured. He is personally at peace with the Lord because the promise of God become man, of Messiah in his arms, proves that he is at rest with the Lord. His sins would be atoned for. He would be reconciled to his creator as a result of this event and the events that will shortly take place. There is a corporate element of this peace that comes and brings the promise of reconciliation and restoration society-wide and earth-wide as we look to the new heavens and new earth. There is the promise of imminent peace for the individual, and even every one of us should realize that. And if we haven't yet, I beg you to confess your sins and stare into the eyes through Scripture 
of your Messiah, so that you can say with Simeon that your eyes have seen your Savior, and that you can depart in peace because your salvation has come in Christ Jesus. This is also an evident peace, a peace that is obvious, a peace that is attended uh, by certain or by a certainty of revelation and so forth. In Zechariah's song, he says, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. This is a peace that is according to, it's spoken of prior to in God's revelation. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. So you see that this peace is evident in the fact that God's word prophesied it, and then in this moment it was fulfilled. It is also evident in the fact that Christ was prepared, that, that is to say God ordered and ordained, and the whole of the Trinity participated in the economy of redemption. Christ became man, took on flesh, and arrived in time as a babe in swaddling clothes in a manger, and now as a babe just eight days old in the arms of Simeon in the temple. And this happened in the presence of all peoples. This is the word of promise prepared and revealed via the incarnation. You've seen the little quip, I'm sure. Jesus is the reason for the season, and it's kind of a little adage to try to turn our attention away from the consumerism and distractions that sometimes attend this season and back on to what is really substantively worthy of celebration. And you might think of that phrase, and it's true as far as it goes, but there is so much to behold when we consider Christ as the reason for worship, period. As Simeon considered the reason for worship, he acknowledged that God's word had proclaimed this moment and that his, his eyes had physically seen the manifestation of God's plan of his messianic hope coming true in his very arms. And this was something prepared that is purposed and ordained by God's right hand in his holy arm in the presence of all the peoples. God became man, Emmanuel, God with us, dwelt among us, born of a virgin. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He will take on the form, the morphe in the Greek of a servant and stoop low to this earth, condescend to walk among us, among us, be subject to every temptation such as we are yet without sin so that in his probation and testing, he may prove to be the second Adam, the perfect one. And by this work, his righteousness was secured, which upon his death is transferred and imputed to every believer who looks upon the Messiah and realizes the power of the incarnation, that their eternal life hinges upon the reality that God became an eight-year-old or an eight-day-old boy in the arms of the covenant faithful one who recognized in this little one was his hope of salvation. Just a few thoughts summarized from across the scriptures to point our attention to imminent peace with God and the meaning of God become man, Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation. Final point this morning, songs of the incarnation herald not only transcending glory, not only imminent peace with God, but a people distinguished by divine favor. Glory to God in the highest, again the angels sing, verse 14, and on earth peace among those, say it with me, with whom he is pleased. This phrase indicates a people who are distinguished by divine favor. Why do you love the Lord if you're a saint in this room? If you're a Christian, why do you love Jesus? The scriptures answer, because he first loved you and gave himself for you. All throughout the scriptures we find that the elect are those who are called, appointed, chosen, and drawn by God's ultimate power. Do we have a choice in the matter? Well, there is a choice in the matter, but it's evidence of a prior choice of the Almighty who saw from eternity past a people who he would ransom for himself. And I'm here to tell you, if we had anything substantial to do with it, that is, if we were the cause in part or in any way of our salvation, then it wouldn't be grace anymore. But we would just be justified in part, at least, by works such is not the case. It is the work of one man alone who is responsible for our salvation, the man, Jesus Christ. 
We are a people who are set apart not by our law-keeping, not by our works, not by our deserving in and of ourselves in any way of divine favor. No, we are a people set apart, least among these, the smallest, helpless, depraved, and hopeless, hell-deserving sinners. We're the people, people foolish, unwise, destitute, and afflicted by our sin, deserving of hell, who are set apart by God's mercy, by His grace, by divine favor. This is pictured in the songs of the Incarnation. Zechariah sings as much, if you will, in his song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. The picture of the elect of old were those of Israel, His people, a synonym. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of His servant David. Again, a descriptive term that communicates a people set apart by His divine favor. A people who find their ultimate identity in His mercy and His grace. Who are they? They are Israel. They are His people. They are the house of His servant David. He goes on to say, The oath that He swore, verse 73, to our father Abraham to grant to us, I should back up to 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. There you have mercy, that which sets His people apart. Our fathers a covenant people of His choosing, to remember His holy covenant, indeed His promises of salvation past now fulfilled in Christ. Verse 73, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us. And then it goes forth to expound the glories of this hope that was promised to Abraham. All this to illustrate, to celebrate, to magnify the Lord, that we, the spiritual children of Abraham, are a people distinguished by His divine favor by His mercy and His grace, those with whom He is pleased. These are covenant members. But note that the physical sons of Abraham were not the only ones to be included in this number. What does Simeon sing? Verse 32, back up to 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. So this work of the miracle of the Messiah born was prepared in the presence of all people, all kinds of people. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Both Gentile and, and Jew are included in this number. The covenant members are distinguished by faith, not by physical birth, but indeed by new birth. You see, the picture in the Testament was those who were born of Abraham were included in the number. But even then, there was a way to be counted among the number. You needed to be grafted in, as Paul later uses language to describe. But now, but in the new covenant, this image of being born according to the seed of Abraham gives way to what Christ called being born again. When you are born again, you are born to a different parent, as it were, spiritually speaking. Now God is your father. Now you are the spiritual offspring of the Lord. And as such, you are accounted among the children of Abraham. The typology has given way to the fulfillment. A light for revelation to the Gentiles has arrived in Jesus Christ. Now all who are born again in Christ will join with this song of transcending glory because His Word is fulfilled even in the hearing and the experience of the people because He has prepared in the presence of people from all over the globe a light of revelation. And this revelation is Christ, the Word made flesh, gone forth, now, throughout all the corners of the world, according to the Great Commission, continuing still, revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. A people distinguished by divine favor. Covenant members signaled by these terms that we see in our text today. Promises that were made to the significant sons of old. You guys remember the legacy of Shem? It was Shem and the... Uh, Shem and the sig significant. Sig significant sons, that is correct. Those significant sons continued in a line from Shem through to Peleg and a bunch of others in between, and then Abraham who was called out, and later we see David. And These are common points of reference in the lineage of the gospel, in the messianic line, all the way until Jesus Christ. But this was a picture of God's way. Of intervening, not only was he sovereign over history, as we've mentioned, but he was sovereign in history. 
preserving among this line of significant sons the bloodline by which Christ would be born, of the house of David, of the house of Abraham, uh, as it were, the son of David, the son of Abraham, born in time. All these threads of prophecy and history are coming together now, and Simeon recognizes as much. Covenant members, all who are born of the new covenant, all who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the elect, Jew and Gentile alike, will join with the praises of the Lord. Zechariah says the same as he closes his song. Verse 78, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Again, a reference to the mercy of our Lord, and then an analogy. This mercy is like a sunrise. Name a corner of the earth that has not experienced the sunrise. You cannot. When the sun rises on the horizon, every piece of ground, every bit of geography is touched and bathed in light. What was once in darkness, what was once under the fearful spell of night, has now been awakened and alive. And the colors and the reality of everything around you is present and obvious in the light of the dawning sun. This is a picture of the difference of the incarnation. Once Jesus Christ was born, once he was uh, entered into this world, furthermore, once he went to the cross and entered forth and, was, uh, and broke forth from that tomb in his resurrection light, the sunrise of God's purposes in salvation began to rise to give light to Jew and Gentile, to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, guiding their feet into the way of peace. So, as we close this message, let us recall once again these themes, songs of the incarnation. They explore, they herald the transcending glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, the imminent peace with God available through Him, reminding us that we are a people distinguished by His divine favor alone. How does our sovereign Lord draw the attention of the people to the reality of Christ and the Word made flesh crucified for our sins today? You know, when Simeon held the Word made flesh in his arms, his attention was drawn to the reality of the Incarnation. When Anna saw that same babe, likewise, she praised the Lord. When the shepherds were in the field, the angels announced with the Word of God from the heavenlies, unto them a child was born. When Zechariah was in the temple, he was visited by an angel. When Mary and Joseph were at different stages in their journey, multiple times the angel of the Lord came to them and said, who Jesus was, what they were to expect, and that all of history was about to change. Where is the voice to us today? You have heard it, brothers and sisters, in this room today, in the proclamation of these scriptures. The Holy Spirit is pleased to use the record of the incarnation in His Holy Word to awaken eyes to see that Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords, Messiah and Savior of all who have placed their trust and faith in Him. It may seem unreasonable to the world, just as an eight-day-old baby, as the hope of Israel, must have seemed, seen, uh, seemed to those who are unaware. But when the Spirit awakens your heart to hear, your ears to hear, your eyes to see, and your faith to be aflame with the fire of revelation from the Holy Scriptures, then you will join in the praises of those who have gone before us, and those who will continue after until the myriad of myriads too many to count echoes with unified voice, praise to the Lamb that was slain. Through His Word proclaimed, even His miraculous works in the Gospels, Christ's identity and authority were emphasized, were pointed to, and those who had eyes to see recognized as much. And we as hearers still today, we listen to His Word. We listen to his apostles who expounded the message of his kingdom. And we listen to Zechariah who tells us that all of this is like a sunrise that has visited us from on high to give us light, though we once sat in darkness, to give us hope of eternal life, though we once were enshrouded by the shadow of death and by his word and by his revelation, guide our feet into the way of peace, hope, and reconciliation with him. May His Word be proclaimed through His people. 
And may his word proclaimed today draw us closer to him and may it inspire us by the realities of the, of the incarnation with worship, with songs and praise and meditations and confessions worthy of his great name. Let us close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have revealed yourself unequivocally and so gloriously in your holy word. We thank you that the Spirit actively present in the heart of the believer opens our eyes to see what is otherwise obscured. Now we pray that you would equip us to give glory to your holy name. Pray that you would perfect the praises of your people such that they are a sweet-smelling incense unto you, that you would find a worthy place to be enthroned when we join our voices, our confession, and our hearts of joy, Lord, together in our songs of praise, even in this place, each Lord's Day. And I pray as we go from here that you would bring with us the message of hope in Christ, just like the shepherds received that commission upon visiting Christ to tell all that they heard the glories of Christ appearing. I pray that we would do so upon the hearing of your word, that you might be glorified and that you might draw the lost unto repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.